Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton's internal auditor is calling for a policy to determine what emails staff can block or redirect. Hate crime is down in Hamilton, but there's been an increase in incidents directed to those who are black or Jewish. Also, a new standing committee interim report suggests that the Niagara-Hamilton area is ripe for economic development due to the potential of national trade corridors. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some months ago, we uh, brought you the story of a, a concerned citizen uh, who was, uh, well, upset about the fact that it appears that uh, the city staff and some city councillors, I'm told, were actually blocking some of his emails. And these are emails that he was sending on a pretty regular basis, uh, asking questions about budgets and things of this nature and requesting information. Uh, the fact that it was happening... Uh, it was uh, disturbing, I think, enough to an awful lot of us. Uh, and the fact that there wasn't really any logical explanation as to why they were being blocked, I guess, was uh, even more so. I guess it was just exacerbating the situation. Well, uh, in uh, Andrew Dressel's column in the Spec today, he actually talks about uh, the fact that the city may actually be trying to address this, finally. And joining us to talk about this is uh, Wade Podziamka, who is, of course, a lawyer with Rasa McBride here in Hamilton, who uh, is uh, representing the aggrieved party. Uh, Wade, first of all, thanks for uh, getting back to us. really appreciate the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Do we put this under the uh, guise of uh, better late than never? I, I'm surprised. I, t- I kind of forgot about this. I assumed it had been resolved. I guess not. Yeah, I mean, we had sent our initial letter out to the, the city back in August, and there wasn't much traction, although Shaker was persistent in following up uh, with the city repeatedly. And uh, we sent another letter out from my office on February 8th, and finally we got a response. So, yeah, I mean, there's some looks like we might be getting some traction. They're talking about at this point, creating a policy to address this issue so there's due process so people understand if their email is going to be blocked or redirected, why is it going to be blocked or redirected, for how long, um, and what's the appeal process, or what, what, what can you do if you, if you don't agree with that decision so people can uh, access their elected officials. Now, I, of course, I spent nine years down there as a city councilor. I, I know Shaker. I don't know him well, but I know him to say hi to, and of course I know that I think you used the word persistent just a minute ago, and that pretty much describes him. Uh, he's a, for those that don't know the story, he is an ex-city employee, uh, and he has always uh, had his eye on the books, uh, you know, the profits, losses, etc., how money is spent, and things of this nature. Um, and I can understand how, if you're a city councillor or maybe even a member of some of the staff committees on there, uh, it can get a little rattling, I guess, that people continually hounding you. But, I mean, that's that's what he wants to do, and their their role is to answer it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I, you know, the city doesn't have an abundance of money right now. We have to be frugal with how we spend it, and I think uh, citizens have a right to know uh, for that to be a transparent process, and I think that's what he's aiming for. He, of course, wasn't uh, worked in accounting before, so he understands that he worked for the city, so he knows a little better than some. Uh, so, from my perspective, he's the he's the guy to be asking these questions. And I think, you know, uh, Mike Zegrek, uh, the acting city manager, said that uh, the emails to staff could be deemed inappropriate or harassing. But deemed by who? Who decides if it's inappropriate or harassing? I've seen many of these emails, be it not all of them, but many of them, and. Uh, from my perspective, I haven't seen anything that could be considered harassing in there. It's persistent. It's asking questions, and yeah. So, well, but therein lies the problem. And again, I'm, I haven't seen the ones that are uh, being referenced right now. But I, I do know how persistent he could be. Back when I was on council, he used to be in touch with a few of us and off his staff an awful lot of the time. And I saw those words again today uh, by, by Mr. Zagarek talking about harassment. Uh, you've seen them, Wade. Do you see anything? I mean, when I hear the term harassment, it conjures up, in my mind anyway, the idea of something that was threatening, uh, maybe lewd behavior, lewd language, anything like that. Do you see those examples of anything like that in the emails? No. Like I said, I haven't seen all of them. I'm sure they go back over many years, but I have seen 
many of the recent uh, email communications, and nothing in there would e- even come near the, the, the line of being harassing. Now, to be fair, because I haven't seen all of them, we asked the city of Hamilton, if there are harassing emails, justify this decision to us. Show us these emails. And we haven't received anything back in that front. So it's, you know, the city of Hamilton's there saying some of these emails may be harassing when we're asking to see them. Well, we're not going to produce them or just silence on that front. So that's, it's difficult to dispute what they're saying when, when they're not prepared to provide the information. Well, and with that in mind, I mean, from a legal standpoint, Wade, is, is that not in the eye of the beholder, or the recipient, I suppose? Well, sure. I mean, that, that's why when I see the comment that, you know, some of these emails could even be, be deemed inappropriate, I guess we all have to ask the question, deemed by who? City staff may deem something inappropriate if it's going to, um, you know, draw attention to something that they might not want attention drawn to. But that doesn't mean that it is inappropriate from an objective standard. And I don't think that Hamiltonians should be accepting, the, you know, this, this generic inappropriate standard that the city can label something with and block and redirect emails. Well, we've just saw an example of that over the last couple of weeks, uh, not so much from a financial standpoint, but, you know, the revelation that there was a, a report about the Red Hill and, the, and the, the, you know, the safety aspects of the Red Hill that somebody was sitting on for about five years. Uh, so, I mean, with that in mind, I mean, it's, it's probably even more important now that we have people like this that are going to say, look, I want some answers to this. I mean, we've seen the consequences of, of not having answers, unfortunately, I think, with the example that you've just cited. And that is a, a frightening example, and I think it's important that that, that that debate in that process continues so we know who had those reports about Red Hill, when they had them, and, and what will be done to prevent this from happening in the future. Wait, did you get any sense uh, as to actually who was doing this, who was blocking these emails, who made that decision? That they, these, were, these were, well, harassing, I guess is the phrase they use, but I mean, somebody had to make the call. Yeah, I mean, I, what we know is that the city auditor, auditor Charles Brown, uh, indicated that uh, that decision was was made by management. Um, doesn't say who management is, but but it wasn't made by him. And uh, he he the reasons for those decisions he he tells us should come from management, not from him. So still haven't received those reasons, but we do know that it was made by senior management of the city. Be a, a question worthy of an answer, I think, to find out exactly what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the more important element, too, if, if in fact, uh, according to Mr. Brown, uh, the auditor, that they are going to move forward and develop some sort of a, a policy here, uh, I, I, as a citizen, would like, kind of like to know who's going to be involved in that decision-making. Uh, what kind of input are they going to get? Yeah, I mean, I think that when, when that policy is drafted, everybody will want to take a look at it, make sure that, um, that, it, that it is, in fact, fair, it's transparent, that citizens have the right to to object to the decision to block their emails. It's a good first step, though. I mean, I don't want to be too critical of the city here, because mm-hmm. at least at this point we are moving there, saying, you know, I've recommended a policy. It's something we're going to be drafting. Um, there's some indication that uh, my most recent correspondence is going before council, or at least a committee of council, and uh, and apparently we're going to have the reasons from, from management to why uh, Shaker's emails were blocked. So it is traction. I mean, they should be credited for that. I think a policy is a step in the right direction, and uh, we'll see where we get with it, though, I think. We have to take a look at what it looks like, and it can't just be window dressing. But where do you draw the line from a legal standpoint, Wade, between input or, in this case, you know, inquisitive emails uh, and and what they would call harassing? I mean, you know, is it if you send one that's eight or ten times, is that harassment? I mean, because but if you're not getting an answer every time you send it, I can understand why you hit resend and do it again. I mean, I think if there's I, I, there's ways to deal with this. If it's not harassing, but it's persistent, if that's the issue, that there's persistent, and the, the, the issue's already been addressed or the question's been answered, you could just send an email out saying, look, I've already answered this question. I'm not going to follow up on it anymore. And you just don't respond to, the, to any emails that ask the same question if that's what's happening. And I'm not suggesting it is. But if that's what they, they deem harassing, there's a way to deal with that. If there's actual harassing behavior where someone's making threats or 
um, engaging in inappropriate language with city staff. Well, that's a different story, and there should be a policy in place, from my perspective, to to protect staff in those situations. Well, I understand that, and and I, you want to make sure that everybody's going to work in a safe environment. I, and and if somebody's sending emails that do sound threatening, I, I or name calling, or any a number of other things, I, I, that, that's pretty obvious, though, Wade. You're crossing a line there, aren't you? But yeah. I mean, but to, in other words, but if somebody says, "Oh God, there's another email from Shaker again," that that's not harassment. No, I, I in, in my mind, that's, anyway, that's certainly not harassment. No. So so you have to wonder exactly what kind of criteria they're going to use for this sort of thing. Um, and, and obviously the inference here is that, okay, this guy's being a bit of a pain in the butt. But th- what he's asking for, at least when, when I had experience when I was on council uh, and the interactions that I would have with him at that time, what he was usually asking for is what I thought was just public information anyway. It's not as if he's asking for conf- confidential documentation. At least not, I hadn't seen that. Did you have any, any ideas or any, any indication that, that he'd gone beyond that? No, my understanding is that all the information that he's asking for is available in the public domain, um, and it's just not being made available in a way that's easily accessible to citizens, and, and it's not being sent to him when he's asking for it. So I don't think that he's asking for anything that's confidential, anything that would be um, you know, extraordinary where counsel would have to sit and debate whether this information would be provided to him. I, I think it's all, it's all out there in the public domain. Is this uh, city staff that are doing this, or, are there, or were there some elected officials involved in this as well? Well, I, I, I don't know that there were any elected officials involved in the decision to block or redirect emails. My understanding is it was uh, senior management from the city. Now, having said that, um, we know that uh, one councillor's emails was blocked to Shaker, and uh, he expressed some concern with that and said, you know, you, to Shaker, you might want to have this looked into. So, uh, you know, there's definitely a barrier between communication between him and councillors, but I, I, as far as I know, councillors weren't involved in the decision to block his emails, and I certainly hope that wasn't the case, that the council members were involved in that decision. The uh, the other concern, I guess, that, that not just uh, individuals like Shaker, but others, I guess, that d- demand answers and are looking for answers from uh, from city staff and from the elected representatives is how these things are going to be handled. And I mean, when you and I talked back in the summertime last year, uh, when you fir- brought, first brought this issue to our attention, uh, one of the concerns and the what I guess one of the parallels, I thought, is the number of people that are always looking for freedom of information requests. And I understand that that takes time, but, but you know, they still have to be addressed and they still have to be, to be followed through on. And, and I, I know that that can be problematic sometimes, but, I mean, this seems to be almost like a, a, a variation on that theme that he's really just trying to get information from the staff in, in various departments, most of it, of course, to do with finances. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and I think he's been, he understands that the, the city staff are busy, and, and many of them do a great job there for the city of Hamilton. He gets that. I think the issue is, though, we've waited six months from our first letter, right? We understand delays. We understand that there's, there's important business to be done, but at some point, we, you know, the courtesy of a response, even if it's just we've received your correspondence, it's going before a committee, like we received now from the February letter, just some acknowledgement and maybe a timeline of when we'll get to it. No one's criticizing them for... For you know that, that that this may take a while to get back to somebody, but it's uh, it's a complete the complete radio silence on on it, which from my perspective might indicate that they're trying to sweep it under the carpet. All right, maybe you can shed some light on something else for me. I mean, and I agree with you. I think it's good that this is a good first step that the city is addressing this finally and say we need to set a protocol in place so we understand exactly what's going on. Uh, and, and that's good. That's a good first step. But, and you know, like I say, we've raised concerns about exactly what that protocol is going to be, how they're going to actually define what's, what's going to be allowed to go through, what's not going to be allowed to go through in circumstances like this. But you have to wonder what kind of an impact this is going to have on this relationship now between the public and city staff when we've already got, uh, as we've just talked about, some, some, well, disconcerting news about sometimes about information getting squashed. 
Yeah, I mean, to be frank, there should be a tense relationship between the public and city staff right now, given what's happening. But hopefully, through that tense relationship, things can get better, and we can have more transparency, and city staff can improve their practices and their policies to a point where we don't have to have a tense relationship, where the public can understand that the happenings at the city are transparent and have faith in, in their elected representatives. And I think that we can get there, and I think that the city, at this point, through their indications, is a good first step towards that. Uh, interesting discussion so far on this. Did you get any? Uh, were you talking to Mr. Brown, by the way? Have you had any discussion directly with the auditor? No, nobody from the city of Hamilton has contacted me uh, ever on this issue, with the exception of uh, one email that says that uh, the correspondence has been received and it's going before the uh, to the next appropriate council agenda. That's it. So that's all you've received. Uh, well, at least you got a response, and Shaker never did. So I guess that's that's a good first step as well. Well, Shaker did get a, a letter from uh, from Charles Brown back uh, on February twentieth as well, where where he, he describes the policy that, that he's recommended. So we don't know exactly how long this is going to take or if they've actually initiated this right now, and, and you know, just as I say, whether there's going to be public hearings on this or just how they're going to do this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, they're prob- my, I anticipate they probably won't have public consultations on it to any great extent, but hopefully they define the threshold for when something could be deemed harassing or inappropriate in their policy so everybody can see what that is, and there'll be a process for us to challenge uh, any decisions to, to block Hamiltonians from contacting uh, council members. But that's pretty much already enshrined, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's a code of conduct, I would think, already someplace down there uh, in somebody's desk drawer that says you can't you know, call people names, you can't you know, issue threatening letters, things of this nature. I, I, that's, that's pretty hard and fast. Now, that's the legal end of things. So you have to wonder just what set of criteria they've been using on this particular circumstance. Yeah, I mean, I, they use the word what staff deem inappropriate, right? I think that's the line, not the harassing line where you know, foul language is being used or there's threats or that type of stuff. That's clear, like you say, but uh, it's when you get into inappropriate conduct. Well, what is that, right? People have different, different tolerances for that, and I think the policy should and, and, and ought to spell that out clearly um, and give uh, a process. So if somebody disagrees, say uh, acting city manager Zagarek believes this email is inappropriate, but the objective reasonable person would not believe it's inappropriate, at least we'll have a process we can go through at that point where someone else can make a determination rather than just radio silence and shutting somebody down. Well, the sooner they get this thing going, the better, I think, as far as everybody else is concerned, and uh, hopefully we can get some action on this. Uh, you did mention, by the way, when we talked last summer, and, and it's, it's referenced in the uh, the article on the paper today, too, uh, that legal action was was a possibility here. In, 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 in what regard? If, if they had not responded, Wade, and, and you hadn't heard from them by letter or, or Shaker had not heard from them, uh, is there a legal avenue to follow on, up on something like this? Um, that's something that we're we're looking into closely. So we're looking into arguments under the Charter of Rights. We're also looking at uh, freedom of information, freedom of expression, and, and the, the rights of elected officials. It gets tricky and complicated when you get into this area, uh, but it's something that we continue to explore. But to be honest, it's something that both Shaker and I hope, uh, it, it's a route we hope we don't have to go down. It would be a, a waste of taxpayer dollars for the city to defend this. We don't want to, you know, we're trying to, to make things better for the city in terms of finances, not make things worse by bringing um, litigation against them. And, and all we're looking for is a courtesy of a response and some dialogue. Well, hopefully this is the first step, and we'll see where it goes from here, Wade. Thanks, as always. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Okay, take care. Take uh, Wade Pozyomka, of course, lawyer uh, with Ross McBride here in town, uh, representing uh, a concerned citizen. And like I said, listen, I understand. I, I, I know from talking to elected officials and having been one for a period of time, uh, it can get a little exasperating when you hear from the same person time and time again. But if you give them the information, or at least say, hey, I can't do that, you've responded. 
and and just repeat that. And he is persistent, I can tell you that. So hopefully they are going to come up with a policy, and we will be in touch with the people of the city uh, to see how that process is going to unfold. Very important information. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about a report that came out uh, today. Uh, this is from Hamilton Police Services, and uh, it has to do with hate crimes. And uh, I guess the good news is when you look at some of these numbers, uh, they are down, uh, but there's still some areas of, of, I think, very deep concern here. Joining us to talk about this is Detective Paul Corgan. Paul is uh, with the Hate Crime Unit with Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today on a busy day. Yeah, it's just a pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about uh, some of the numbers here, Paul. And like I say, when I look at the the bar graphs and some of the stats that uh, police services have presented us here, it's down from last year, but talk to us a little bit about how you actually make these determinations uh, from year to year. Okay, so we're down about 8% over last year. We went down from 136 uh, to 125. So that 136 is a combination of criminal offenses, which we can prove are hate bias in nature, and incidents where we, we can't prove it. So an example would be um, if somebody assaults somebody because of their religion or their ethnicity, that's a hate crime. Uh, if we get graffiti on a building and it says, you know, a racial slur, that's not a hate crime because we can't prove the motivation behind mm-hmm. it. So that's the difference between a criminal offense and a non-criminal offense. But we categorize everything. We keep track of everything that we can. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, we've had instances, and we've talked with guys in, in, in the police service about some of the crimes and uh, graffiti, spray paint, things of this nature. Uh, if, if To make that determination, uh, to, to cross that line into, yes, this is a crime, as opposed to just vandalism, uh, is is it the severity of it? Is it the location of where the uh, the event occurs? Or a combination uh, yeah, of it? It's a combination of all, and that's where the investigation comes in. You know, if it's on the side of a building that has no association, any particular demographic, or if it's on the side of a synagogue, it's an anti-Jewish comment. So, you know, that would that would make it. Our biggest our biggest criminal offense, uh, our biggest instance, are graffiti. That's our number one hate bias incident for for every year. It's all graffiti. We're looking at about twenty three, I think, for this uh, for twenty eighteen. Um, and our number one group that's always uh, um, targeted are members of the black community, which is slightly up over last year. We had 41 this year and 40 in 2017. How do you account for something like that? I mean, that's that's a rather troubling statistic. I mean, uh, we know that the Jewish community has always been targeted a, a, a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and I guess those numbers are, yep. are significant again this year. And it seems to be between yep. blacks, uh, the black community and the Jewish community. Yes, it is. Uh, this year, the Jewish community were up 25% over last year. And it's been a steadily increase every year, year over year, um, targeting members of the Jewish community. Uh, we don't know. You know, there's a lot of things that come into play. It's international events, local events. Uh, we also, of course, the Internet plays a big part in this. There's a lot of hate on the Internet now, and people sit and look at this stuff, and, and, and they gather their thoughts, and they go and do these things. So it's very hard to pin it to one thing. The main thing is that we just keep harping on about education and teaching people that it's not acceptable. Do you track that, Paul, what goes on on social media? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. We have analysts now in, in, in the department, in every different department, including mine, and they, they constantly monitor social media to see what's happening. So the, if, in fact, they see a, a, something that they can red flag, they would bring that to your attention and, and maybe track yeah. that individual or, or whoever it might yeah. be that's actually posting that sort of stuff? Yeah, and it's very important that we do that, and this is why we track incidents, even if it's not a criminal offense, and this is why we try and get across to members of the public that they must report this to us, even if they don't think it's that important or if it's not a criminal offense, because we track people, and in the future, if they do engage in criminal activity, we can use that previous occurrences as proof that they have a hate bias, and then we can get asked for an increased sentence when we go to court. 
which is where we use that type of information. This is very similar. I, I know when we had the discussion some months ago, but uh, when uh, police services released some data about uh, about sexual assaults, uh, and and the concern that was raised at that time was uh, unreported uh, incidents yeah. uh, like this. I'm sure that's obviously a factor in, in in you gathering this kind of information too, getting somebody to actually come forward and report something. Yeah, we we reckon that about two thirds of criminal offences are reported, and that's that's Canada and also the FBI. They they that's their statistics. About two thirds of criminal offences, and about one third of incidents, non-criminal offences, are reported to the police. So we engage throughout the year about forty or fifty presentations to many different uh, community groups, religious groups, schools, to ask them to report, and we explain to them what a hate crime is. So. Uh, it's very, very important to report, no matter how small or insignificant you might think the event is. Why the hesitation in some parts, Paul? I mean, just, for, I guess, anecdotally, from the information that you've gathered from those those interactions you've had with some of those groups, is, is it fear of reprisal? It's fear of reprisal. It's fear of the police. Uh, a lot of groups might be, you know, newcomers to Canada. They might have not had good uh, interaction with police in their own country. It might think that they don't think it's that important. They might think the police can't do anything about it. There's many different reasons, and that's why we go into the community and explain to them that you should report and, you know, and, and, and what we will do when they do report. Is, is there a concern about, about violence, begetting violence here, that if you see something like this, a hate crime of some description, that, uh, that there's always a concern that somebody may want to take business into their own hands and say, I'll, I'll get even myself? Yeah, and that's a fear, of course, you know, and even even apart from that, you know, something that might be minor in nature can affect the wider community, and that can uh, incite violence in other people. You know, we've had instances where, I've had an instance where people would be uh, not that upset by the incident themselves. They say, you know what, I don't care, and they move on, but somebody else within their community can get very upset by it. And this is a problem with this type of behavior. It, ex- it affects the wider community, and, and it needs to be, you know, stamped down immediately. Uh, staffing's always going to be an issue like this. Uh, and, you know, like I said, police service, I think Paul deserves an awful lot of credit for actually for you know putting this unit together, of course, and dealing with hate crimes. And, yep. and, and I know it's been ongoing, and I think my first interaction with this was way back after 9-11 uh, when we were talking with the chief at that time about uh, instilling that, yep. that sort of an attitude and mindset and, and getting people to be aware and, of what was going on and to report these sorts of things. It's, it's got to be ongoing, but talk to us a little bit about the, the ongoing dialogue you have with some of these groups. Uh, for instance, uh, from the black community, the Jewish community, uh, LGBTQ community. I know there's some there's some consistently as on going on there as well. Uh, obviously, the, the, you know the the bad time to do that is after there's been an incident. And you have to get some information about it, but you want yeah. to create that that trust and that dialogue, don't you? We do, and that's what you know. We work very closely with LGBTQ. We have a we're in the schools. We have the positive space committees that we work with. You know, the unit uh, is responsible for raising money for the uh, Pink Prom, which is held every year for uh, members of the LGBTQ community in school. Uh, we also talk to every different group, you know, black community, the Jewish community, the Muslim community. We've run recruitment sessions in these communities. We work with the recruitment division here to, to encourage people uh, to apply to become police officers. So uh, it's really, uh, it's about building that base so that when something does happen that we can, um, we can you know, uh, deal with it up front. What kind of response do you get? What kind of reaction do you get with those recruitment uh, initiatives uh, within some of that community? Because that's that's something that uh, not just Hamilton, but I think just about every community uh, is setting as a goal right now to try to be more inclusive uh, with the, the makeup of the department. Are you making headway there? I think so, yeah. I mean, our, our numbers are, are certainly up. And, you know, when, when we go into these groups, we show them that, you know, we put our pants on one leg at a time. We're like everyone else. We need these folks, you know, 
we need to be representative of, of the community that we serve. And I think, you know, it's a long way to go, obviously, but we're getting there. And it takes time and it takes effort, and we are putting in the effort. Are there hot spots, Paul, that w- would you look at here to, to say, well, look, this is one area that we really have to pay attention to because there seems to be a larger incidence of, of these sorts of crimes? Well, downtown uh, is, has the majority. Uh, and then equally between, we have three divisions. So Division 1 is downtown, and that, that gets the majority of incidents. And then Division 2 and Division 3, the East End and up in the mountain, are, are similar. We're about 36, 35 uh, each. So obviously downtown we have, uh, you know, we have the mosque, and down the West End we have the synagogue. So that, that tends to attract that type of behavior. Um, I, I don't think, I think it's equally spread. It's, it's spread to all demographics, to all uh, socioeconomic classes. You know, hate is learned. That's what we say. We have to unlearn hate. Like people learn to hate, and, and, and they, their, their fear through bias they pick up over the years, and we try and you know counteract that by putting out facts. And again, the internet has a has, has a big influence on people's behavior. They read stuff now, and you know much of it is not true. And as you said, after nine eleven, you know we saw a huge increase in um, hate towards members of the Muslim community, and that is why this unit was filmed in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, and it maintains uh, the, that that working relationship right now. And, and we've seen that trust built with a number of those communities over the last little while. But I guess obviously, yeah. job one here is to encourage people to come forward when they see something or think they, that something could be happening to report it to you and and, and let you make that determination and, uh, as as to how and, and to approach exactly, that. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how minor, no matter how small or insignificant you think it is, or even if it's not a criminal offense, people say it was not criminal, but we need the data, we need to know who's doing this so we can address it. And we speak to people. You know, we've had people involved in road rages or making racial slurs against people. It's not a criminal offense, but we go talk to that person and say, you know, it's not acceptable. You can't talk like that to people. And many times people apologize and say, you know what, I had a bad day, I shouldn't have done it, and it's just an educational piece. Well, and you don't want things to ramp up, do you? And that's exactly and nip it yeah, in the bud if you can, and have that discussion absolutely. with them. Absolutely. Well, it's yeah. it's encouraging to see the numbers going down, and hopefully we'll be having that discussion again in a couple of months, and we can talk about the the impact that you're having, Paul. I know you had to jump out of a meeting for this. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for okay. the time today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Take Bye. care. That's uh, Detective Paul Corrigan, of course, from the Hate Crime Unit with Hamilton Police Services. Uh, and and the, that's the takeaway here. Uh, if you see something, if you hear something. Report it to police, and 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 you know, as he says, it may not even be a crime. You may, but that's not for you to determine. That's for them to determine, uh, because you may think, wow, it's the only time this guy's ever done something to me like this. But they may have information to say, actually, it's about the twentieth time he's done something to somebody. So that that is worthy of of following up on. So the more information they get, obviously, the better they are at uh, doing their jobs. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, it was revealed that a uh, new standing committee interim report uh, with the city suggests that, uh, and this is, uh, by the way, in uh, concert with what's going on with uh, Transport Canada, uh, the Niagara-Hamilton area is ripe for economic development. And we've been talking about that for years, and and, uh, we obviously have some statistics that are actually going to back that up. Uh, The potential for a nationwide trade corridor exists, and uh, by all indications, the Hamilton Port Authority is going to be a main player in that. Ian Hamilton is the CEO for the Hamilton Port Authority. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hey, Ian, how are you doing today? Great. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Good to have you back with us here today, and, and good news stories. Uh, we, we always talk about economic development, and, and, you know, the airport is always involved in that conversation, and we talk about some of the other things that are happening. Uh, and we tend to forget, I don't, but I think some people tend to forget an awful lot about the Port Authority. I mean, you are one of the huge economic drivers in this area. 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, 20, uh, 2018 was a was a phenomenal year to uh, to reinforce that. There was about uh, three uh, three billion dollars worth of cargo that came through the uh, came through the port last year, which was uh, which was fantastic. And and that's only one element of this. I mean, the other stuff we want to talk about are the businesses that locate that work with you uh, down around that particular area, uh, which has been a great news story. And uh, we talk about how we've developed and, and have attracted some of these businesses here. And uh, you guys do it better than most. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, we've got about 100 and 130 uh, tenants here on the property now, and amongst them that uh, they've they've invested uh, close to 350 million dollars into their into their assets here to uh, to uh, facilitate export development and uh, and trade, which has been uh, which has been wonderful. Well, with that success in mind, uh, the, I guess the bad news is you're running out of space. Yeah, and it's been a it's been something that we've uh, we've recognized for the last uh, the last few years, and uh, today we today we struggle to meet uh, to meet demand. And certainly last year, when uh, when volumes were so strong, we uh, we couldn't uh, we couldn't actually satisfy all of the demand for the uh, for the need for terminal link facilities. So when you start looking uh, around to see what what's the lay of the land here and how you can actually uh, work in in concert with other areas, other communities, let's talk about some of the the potential here. Uh, and and some of the stuff that you've already started to explore. And there was a, a story that didn't get a whole lot of traction the other day uh, about uh, some discussions you're having with Oshawa now to do with the port. Yeah, so the the federal government has actually um, issued a, what is called an intent to amalgamate, and that's, uh, that's fundamentally a... Um, an, in, or an intention or to, to review the possibility of amalgamation between the Hamilton Port Authority and the Oshawa Port Authority. And they're going through a consultation period right now, which uh, should end on March the 20, 26th, and, so, uh, dealing with all the stakeholders to find out their views. We, we certainly believe that, um, that a combined entity is a, is a stronger entity and um, it helps us to, uh, to really integrate the transportation assets in southern, uh, southern Ontario. Is there a template for that, Ian, where, where communities are, are doing that sort of thing for, from this standpoint, especially with one port with another port? Um, there's a good example of it happening out in the in Vancouver okay. and uh, Ports Metro. They tied together a, a number of years ago, um, but uh, it hasn't um, it hasn't been that common a practice. However, and uh, when you look at uh, you look at Ontario and um, and the need for an integrated uh, transportation strategy, there's some underlying logic to uh, to look at this market. Well, let's ask. I, I want to ask you about that because obviously, uh, I, I understand from the the research we've done on this that uh, that I guess Oshawa could use some help right now. It's it's not a, a, a really viable entity right now, uh, and obviously the success that you've brought to, to the table here, uh, you could be a, a huge benefit to them. But I guess let's look at that from the recipro- reciprocal standpoint. Uh, what do they bring to the table that could be beneficial to you? Yeah, and that's right. We've we've got a um, a larger entity here in here in Hamilton, which does have some um, a toolbox that might not uh, might exist the same way in same way in Oshawa, but certainly uh, integrating a um, an east uh, an east metro and a west metro um, type of uh, type of approach to the marine assets would would make a lot of sense. Um, they do have some property that could be could be developed in Oshawa, um, so I think that uh, I think that there is a there is a way to uh, reduce the overall logistics cost for companies uh, that want to move cargo in and out of the uh, GTHA. Let me ask you about the, uh, the the city. We're just leapfrogging over as we're having this discussion, mm-hmm. uh, and that would, of course, be Toronto. Uh, now we've heard all sorts of stories about Toronto's waterfront, etc., and, and how these, uh, the residential development has, has just seemed to be encroaching almost to the to, to the lake's edge there. Uh, 
talk to us about the, the viability of, of their commercial port business. I know it's not it's it, the potential for that is is not quite as large as as in Hamilton, and the numbers maybe aren't there. But I mean, it is still Toronto, and it's a major area. Uh, can you leapfrog over that and work with Oshawa, or do we do we have to acknowledge that uh, that like just about everything else in the province uh, when it comes to economic development, uh, Toronto's still the big dog here? Well, from a from a cargo side, Toronto is. Um Toronto is not that uh, not that large anymore. Mm-hmm. Quite simply, as you said, the the, uh, the demands for residential and commercial space has um, has really encroached in on the uh, on the port activities. They still play a role in um, in dealing with some of the construction materials and sugar and different areas in in downtown. But anything we would we really do think should be an integrated approach to transportation. So we would work very closely with our colleagues at the Toronto Port Authority. And that, I want to talk about that integration. That's a key part of this, because we talked about the airport a couple of seconds ago, and, of course, there's the port. Uh, but one of the things, that I guess, that makes this whole area around uh, the head of the lake, as they call it, uh, so attractive is the fact that uh, you check all the boxes when it comes to transportation and movement of goods, don't you, between the airport, between the port, uh, the rail system, and certainly the, the highway systems. Yeah, there's actually, and the rail's an interesting one, there's very few ports, um, particularly our size, that um, that have access to both Class 1 class one railways and the uh, the marine component and good access to the roads, and uh, we work very closely with our colleagues at the uh, at the airport to uh, to try to attract new businesses into Hamilton to take advantage of the transportation infrastructure. Well, because it's multimodal. I mean, I was surprised to find out that uh, any piece of cargo at any given time may actually use one, two, or maybe even three of those, those modes of transportation to get from you know, from market uh, to market or wherever it has to go. Yeah, and then and there's certainly uh, there's certainly some examples of that. Everything everything in Hamilton ultimately um, probably touches a truck at one stage, which is um, which is a key element to uh, to being successful. But uh, what we've found in Hamilton and uh, the inland ports is that customers are really looking for modal choice, so they want to be able to take advantage of the most uh, the most cost effective um, and efficient mode of transportation, depending on the situation they're in. So customers who can one day use rail, one day use truck, and one day use marine, and uh, we we provide that uh, that perfect solution here. Then you combine that with uh, the airport in Hamilton, and I think Hamilton customers have access to uh, to world-class transportation uh, modes. I can remember years ago, Ian, having discussions uh, with the province it was at this time, because they were dealing with it at New York State at the time, uh, and, and the subject was uh, short-sea shipping, and, and obviously the, the advantages of that. I mean, we know that there's gridlock on some of the highways, and, and goods movement, uh, one of the key elements to any goods movement process, I guess, is time. I mean, they want to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. And uh, and they're starting to look at uh, short sea shipping right now as an alternative, and as or as a companion piece, I guess, to this. Is it gaining traction, or are, are governments starting to understand the importance of the ports once again? Um, for short sheet, certainly. They are starting to look at it. I think, un- unfortunately, the province is, um, has always viewed uh, marine transportation as um, as federal jurist. Um, Federal jurisdiction mm-hmm. and has really focused more on uh, more on road transportation. But I think the uh, the government today is starting to understand, and the province is starting to understand that um, marine can offer a, a part of a solution to the congestion and to the greenhouse gases. To facilitate that, an integrated port network um, makes a lot of sense. So that uh, so that fundamentally, there's uh, there's one one body looking at both ends of uh, both bookends to uh, to look at the opportunities. How do we how do we move cargo off of the um, the roads and move it on to uh, onto marine transportation. And that was the gist, actually, of the conversations. I can remember back in my time in, in city council, uh, spending a fair bit of time down in Queens Park talking to some of the ministries there to say, "Look, at you. I understand what you guys want to do, you know, vis-a-vis transportation, but 
I mean, you've got to consider the port and as a, as an alternative. And you're right; it's it's kind of you know trying to lead them to the water here. I guess to use the old idea of it, and that's I guess where that phrase about Highway H two O was born and and that whole concept right now. I hope that you you are you know capable and, and handling that so that the province gets the, the gist of exactly how important this stuff is. That would be a big part of this. But as you talk about this this area around the head of the lake now, we've talked about Oshawa. I know you're looking the other direction right now, down towards Niagara and St. Catharines Way. Talk to us about that initiative and what you can see happening there. Yeah, we certainly think that the, um, the economies of Hamilton and Niagara are fully, uh, are, are very integrated. And uh, we think that they're over the last decade. Um, Niagara has probably lagged behind Hamilton in terms of industrial development. But as we see the uh, as we see the growth in Niagara and the uh, availability of industrial property and the lack of the same in, in Hamilton, we think that uh, Niagara is an excellent place to uh, to grow down the road, and feel that um, I, an integrated approach between Hamilton and Niagara makes a uh, makes a huge amount of sense. But um, it certainly takes nothing away from Hamilton, but when you're when you're full, you've got to say how do we how do we continue to grow and facilitate the uh, the Ontario economy? Well, uh, considering that some of the traffic that obviously is going through Hamilton has to go through the lock system as well, it would make an awful lot of sense, and there'd be some synergies there, wouldn't there? Oh, for sure, for sure. And uh, as I mentioned last year. At the end of last year, we we had to turn away at least six vessels from Hamilton because of uh, because of congestion. And I think that uh, if we can offer a um, a whole buffet of opportunities or solutions, whether it be uh, throughout the Welland Canal area or potentially even Oshawa, then I think that we can uh, we can really minimize the logistics costs. What kind of uh, dialogue are you having with the the folks down in Niagara right now? This I, I want people to get the impression this is a hostile takeover. This is really just a, the development of a partnership, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it was really started by by the folks in Niagara, the previous regional council, and now it's been adopted by this regional council, and all of the mayors along the Welland Canal and along with the industry. And they've reached out to us and said, what can we do uh, to help them um, take advantage of some of their brownfield sites and, and leverage this wonderful asset they have in the uh, in the seaway to attract businesses? So right now we're we're not exactly you're, you're exactly right. It's not a hostile takeover. We're just trying to trying to find a way to to support the uh, to support the growth of the the whole region. There was a time uh, not too many years ago where, where municipalities and uh, frankly even businesses would shy away from brownfields in because of the cost of remediation, which they thought was just you know problematic. How have how have you conquered that? Because obviously uh, people are looking at that right now as a viable alternative. Yeah, and the um, certainly the regulations around um, around contaminated properties are something that have to be considered, but um, they do offer unique opportunities. And in certainly, if we uh, if you can contain any of the contaminants on the site and ensure that there's no uh, there's no leaching off the sites, that they can uh, they can be uh, meaningfully employed as um, as employment lands and uh, in industrial industrial lands. So, so it, it depends on the think, use, then, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Uh, and it, think, it doesn't um, necessarily have to be pristine. Right, right, and it doesn't, and everything doesn't have to be converted into uh, into condominiums or residential. And uh, I think it's important to preserve uh, to preserve lands for industrial uses. Absolutely, and and well, we've seen an example of that, I guess, right in our backyard here with Randall Reef. I mean, they they are containing. Uh, the, the 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 contamination there, as opposed to simply trucking it away, and and I guess depending on the use and depending on who's interested in the property, I guess there's variations, obviously, as to how it has has to be remediated. Yeah, that's exactly right, and I think that um, in a lot of cases, they as long as you preserve the property as for industrial uses, then um, then and you contain the contaminants on the site, then I think you can um, you can use it for generations to come for uh, for employment lands. Oh, so there's another piece I wanted to ask you about, and I know it's not part of the story directly, but I know it's still on your radar. 
and and those are the uh, the Stelco lands uh, that that are again right here in our backyard. I know that you had expressed some interest in those some time ago. Then we heard obviously from Bedrock that said no no no, uh, we're taking the for sale sign down for now. But they haven't quite identified exactly what they want to do, and there may still be some surplus lands. Are you still kicking the tires there? Yeah, we would. Um, we still think there's a big opportunity on their on their lands, and we would uh, we encourage uh, working with them um, on a regular. Or we talk with them on a regular basis and think that there's a way to way to cooperate to uh, to do something to do something together on the property. Um, they've made it clear that they um, they want to keep the lands, which is which is great. But let's uh, let us help them to uh, understand how best to. Uh, to use those properties to facilitate uh, trade and uh, create jobs. Well, as you've done with other partnerships around this area too, it, it's, you don't necessarily have to, to have the ownership, but, but as long as you can do the management of that facility, uh, and clearly uh, the, the people that want to attract it or put their businesses in places like this, obviously, uh, I mean, you know, you're, they've got your number. I mean, they know where to call if they want to get this thing done. So they, I, I'm hoping that uh, the folks at Bedrock would look at you as a facilitator for this sort of stuff. I'm, I'm assuming they want to develop it at some point, don't they? Yeah, and I think they want to develop uh, consistent with our view and as an industrial site. And I hope that they, uh, we, as I said, we've had regular regular contact with them, and I don't think they're quite ready yet to make a decision of exactly what they want to do. But um, but we believe that uh, ultimately we'll be aligned and we'll be able to offer some uh, some support. And I think you make a good point that uh, no, we don't have to own everything, but um, we can manage and offer the uh, offer our same toolbox up for properties that we don't own as well. You know, you talked about other options, and and well, you know, the Toronto example, I guess, you know, where they've decided, okay, we're going to uh, you know accent right the residential aspect this. And I know there was some discussion even from some of the members on city council a few years ago about looking at those Stelco lands for something like that. But uh, you, you must be heartened by the fact that at least as of now, anyway, the commitment from uh, the city right now from city council is to keep that as industrial, as a, as a growth area and as an economic development area. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that shows a lot of vision because it's, uh, I know there's always a temptation and a movement to move it away from that area, but uh, you look at Hamilton's uh, rich industrial history and the opportunities that industry will continue to uh, to provide for uh, for Hamilton families in terms of employment and in terms of wealth. And I think it's uh, it's very uh, it's very forward looking that they have decided to say let's let's keep this property uh, as as employment lands. And we've seen, I guess, a, a development, a renaissance, really, and a kind of an evolution with uh, with industry. I mean, I know that uh, generations ago, of course, we were talking about the steel plants and Procter and Gamble and and the Firestone plants and things of that nature down there. Uh, but I, I industry has changed, certainly. We don't usually build factories for 5,000 workers anymore. But the, with this new tech and with the new industry that's in there, they still are looking for proximity to, for instance, the ports. So you, there's still a ready market for the sorts of businesses uh, that you want to uh, bring into this area, aren't there? Yes, there are. And um, you're right, the, the, the mega factory is, is something that's more and more rare. But, um, but the nice thing about it is sometimes... Um, Industry gets painted with with a brush that existed uh, from the 19, 1940s with large smokestacks and uh, and different items like that. But all of the new facilities, whether it be in steelmaking or whether it be in um, in food processing, are much cleaner, much more environmentally friendly, and much safer than anything that was built uh, built 50 years ago. So the new you you come to the port today and you look at some of the new new developments and you'll discover that uh, that they're clean, they're safe, they're um, they're not spewing up any uh, any pollutants, and it's uh, it's a real um, Real compliment to uh, to the regulations and also to industry who's um, who's risen to the challenge to uh, to find new ways to do things. Well, it's a, it's a good news story, and uh, with some of the other concerns and some of the other challenges, I guess that uh, other communities are facing from an economic standpoint, it's kind of nice to know that that you guys are, are in expansion mode right now. Good luck with this, and uh, stay in touch as you, uh, you guys develop this. Appreciate the time today, Ian.
Yeah, thank you very much. Always a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Ian Hamilton, CEO for the Hamilton Port Authority, uh, looking towards Niagara. Well, you see that every time you go over the St. Catherine Skyway, the Garden City Skyway Bridge, uh, those lines down there. And uh, basically, boy, they'd love to be in partnership with some of that. And that would be a huge boon for the Hamilton Port Authority and, of course, enhance the economic development down in Niagara. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.